DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for uh, joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. Let me update you on the most important story and the one that we're going to take up in just a few minutes, uh, the story out of Brunswick, out of Glynn County, uh, the uh, uh, shooting of 25-year-old Ahmad Arbery. In fact, as I'm sure all of you know by now, uh, because you've been listening to the news, Gregory McMichael and his son Travis McMichael have been arrested on murder charges and are being held in uh, the Glen County Jail. We're going to get into that case and all of the tortured path that it took to get to this point with our panel. Let me introduce the panel first, and then I want to take you through a, a timeline of uh, uh, that I think will help us talk about this in a very specific and precise way. Uh, Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us, as he is on Mondays and Fridays. Uh, you read him in the Wednesday and Sunday paper, and uh, he oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Jim, how are things going for you out there in West Cobb these days? How, how are you holding up with your wife, Judy? Uh, we're, do- we're doing fine. We're doing fine. Uh, we are tired of Netflix so we have taken to watching the neighbors <laughs> next door who are solving an ivy problem. Uh, they've imported about a dozen goats. <laughs> and that they're fun lovely. to watch. <laughs> All right. All right. We're also joined today by Dr. Andra Gillespie. Of course, she's a political science professor at Emory University. Uh, Andra, how about you? Are, are you holding up all right out there in uh, the Emory neighborhood? I, I, I am holding up. Um, I can't say that I've had a whole lot of time to watch Netflix yet. Um, I haven't gotten quite to that point. So we're just finishing up and finishing up grading and everything right now. And so, um, and there's still more work. So I, I haven't, I don't have Netflix, but I wouldn't be able to Netflix and chill if I did. How has this worked uh, for you having to do this, uh, much of this semester by, I assume, Zoom or however you've been doing it? Has it worked well or has it been really awkward um you know it has worked as best that it could and my students have been troopers uh, there are things that are awkward about teaching class via zoom so one of the things that a lot of my colleagues and i've talked about is we're used to standing up in front of a classroom um and we've now had to sit a lot um and so it does i was fidgety um i know a lot of people were thinking that if we have to do this into the fall that they're going to have to get a different setup <laughs> okay um, and you might well have to do that the way things are going right now. Uh, also joining us is uh, Karen Owen. She's a professor of political science at West Georgia University. Uh, Karen, I assume you're continuing to teach and taking care of the little ones you have at home every day. That's a double burden. Yes, it has been a challenge, I will say. I would say my students at West <laughs> Georgia have done exceptionally well. Uh, managing the shift to online learning. Of course, a few of them uh, weren't able to log in when we needed to have a synchronized session, but we've managed that. Now, I would also have to admit that I might not be the best homeschool parent teacher, so I will be looking forward to the day my children can return to school. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe when they're of university age, you'll be able to teach them at home better than when they're they're at at their current ages. (laughs) I'm hoping that is true. We're also... Yeah, we're also joined by the editor of Georgia Health News today, Andy Miller, a frequent panelist on Political Rewind. What about you, Andy? How has it been? I assume you're sheltering in place and still putting out Georgia Health News. Is it is it more challenging? Are you comfortable sheltering in place? What's your life been like? Well, this is the most difficult, onerous story that you can imagine covering. It's been weeks now, and uh, it seems like there's a different headline every two or three hours. And uh, it's, it's, it's been challenging to keep up with it. I did go to the governor's press conference yesterday, and I saw many more people wearing masks, including uh, just about every reporter who was there. We're going to get into that uh, in a little bit, but we really are going. To, we we really do need to start 
with this uh, fast-moving now story out of Brunswick, the shooting of Ahmad Arbery, and the arrests that were made overnight of Gregory McMichael, 64-year-old and a white man, his son Travis McMichael. Um, let me. I want to walk you through a quick timeline panel and, and then have you all get involved in this conversation because I think the timeline is crucial to understanding what's going on. Um, Ahmad Arbery was shot after the confrontation with the McMichaels on February 23rd. Uh, the Glynn County Police Department uh, was on the scene immediately. They uh, wanted to have an investigation launched. They turned to the district attorney's office in Glynn County. The first district attorney recused himself, uh, I believe, because McMichael had done some work there and felt it was inappropriate for him to be involved in the case. Um, it eventually was turned over to um, a second district attorney, uh, George Barnhill. George Barnhill uh, also eventually <clears throat> recused himself. But here's the crucial pieces of information about this. So the shooting takes place on February 23rd. There's some reassignment of duties in the DA's office. Barnhill finally gets the case. On April 1st, April 1st, he gets a report from the um, coroner, from the medical examiner, which tells him that, yes, indeed, uh, uh, Arbery was killed by apparently three shots uh, from uh, the McMichael's uh, guns. Um, and then he makes another important point. He has already, by the time he, he, he files his a letter with the Glynn County Police Department explaining why he thinks the McMichaels should not be charged with any crime in this. And here's what's uh, important about this. He makes that, he writes that letter and files it on April 2nd. And in that letter, he refers to the fact that he has seen the video, which finally came to light to the public this week and was what accelerated the timetable that led to the arrest of the McMichaels. But, but uh, by April 2nd, if not a little before, a prosecutor had seen the video of the confrontation between the McMichaels uh, uh, going after a presumed burglar in the neighborhood, uh, Ahmad Arbery. And, and, and what Barnhill then says is that the video, which was made by a second car driven by William Bryan, who was documenting what the McMichaels were trying to do in chasing down this alleged burglar, um, he says that the, it's pretty clear to him from the video that the McMichaels essentially acted uh, in good faith. They had a right to confront him. Uh, he threatened. He was threatening uh, to them. Uh, they were legally empowered to carry guns. And so he suggests that there should be no action taken whatsoever. That was April 2nd that he wrote that letter. Uh, he, in that same letter, recused himself uh, because uh, of his uh, a conflict of interest with one of the Michaels as well. So it finally goes to a third uh, district attorney who, uh, now the video gets released this week, early this week, and shocks the country, um, shocks the nation as they see how this is unfolded. And it's only in the last day uh, uh, the GBI is called in to investigate, and yesterday in the e early evening, uh, the uh, district attorney's office issues warrants on charges of murder and aggravated assault for the McMichaels. There's a lot more to the story than that, but I think, Jim Galloway, just by sketching out those few details, we can see the delay in any effort to find out what happened and to bring justice in this case especially given the video has been uh, around for at least a month. Right. And now we have, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm reading from a, uh, a tweet that uh, GPB Stephen Fowler just uh, put out. He's quoting uh, GBI director Vic Reynolds, He's, uh, who says, I am very comfortable in telling you that there is more than sufficient probable cause in this case for felony murder. It, it was, you know, it, uh, it, it took that video to 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 get a to, to get people to see the obvious. 
Andra? You know, there's a lot to say here in this case. I mean, I think part of the issue with the Barnhill letter is, is that if you're recusing yourself, why are you pontificating about it, right? You clearly stated that you have a conflict of interest when you're just muddying the waters by, by weighing in on this. Um, you know, this is horrible. I wish I could say it's shocking. It's not because it's happened so much. And so, you know, I think people kind of looked at the living while black kind of moments that we've had in the last two years. You know, we could talk about barbecue Becky or permit Patty, right? <laughs> this is an extension of that. Only this time somebody died. Um, and to think about the notion of doing a citizen's arrest without, based on what I've heard from the reporting, um, that uh, the, you know, alleged shooters uh, were, were, were doing, it didn't seem like they were catching him sort of in the commission of a crime. So the whole idea that this was a citizen's arrest just didn't make sense. They had sort of an idea that there was somebody who was black who was, uh, by, you know, burglarizing houses, and they just caught the first black person that they saw running. Um, and then the fact that he died with defensive wounds, so that wound in his hands looked like he was struggling for a gun, and then you want to say that this justifies a type of self-defense is just really unconscionable. Um, and, you know, today, if, uh, you know, because this is actually uh, Ahmaud Arbery's birthday, uh, you know, people, activists have asked for people to run 2.23 miles sort of in honor of the day that he died. And I think, you know, that's it's it's not enough, but it's fitting. And I think it's time that people say that this is enough and that we've got to stop this type of vigilante racist violence. You know, Karen, um, it, 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 it one of the things Andra said is really worth pointing out. I'm glad she pointed it out. Uh, in Barnhill, George Barnhill, the D.A. who wrote the letter saying, I don't think there's any reason to bring charges. He cites as one reason why uh, it was a justified shooting the fact that the autopsy report showed that um, one of the bullets went through, uh, I, I don't remember if it's the left hand or the right hand, which uh, 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 he says is an indication that Arbery was trying to grab the gun away from Travis uh, McMichael and so therefore was being aggressive and they had a right to defend themselves. I mean, that in and of itself is such a questionable and, and I, I think, uh, awful thing to contemplate. But, but why don't you weigh in? Because, and let me, let me put this to you and then say what you want. We have, don't have any way of knowing if this video had not come to light this week, whether anything would have happened. We, we, none of us knew almost anything about this case until the last week. Yes, and you know, to the first point you mentioned about the gentleman's uh, self-defense wound of in the hand. I mean, that clear and of itself. If you're, you know, being attacked, uh, assaulted, you're going to defend yourself no matter what. And um, you know, for the the DA, the prosecutor to weigh in seems a little much when he was to be recused. And then, as far as this is just clear that. The video surfaced, and, you know, as Andre pointed out, if this was a citizen's arrest, then there would have been no police cam when we would have normally seen, like, a police involvement, right, to see this video, that this is now a citizen's video that was released. And having that has brought it to our attention, but the shame is that the fact that the criminal justice system is operating in the way it is. And I think as citizens in this state, we need to speak out. And, you know, she mentioned that this gentleman's birthday is today, but the whole community, not black, the black community, but everyone in this state needs to be out running and supported this man and talking about how we have to have a stronger criminal justice system. Yeah, uh, Bill. If if I could just add add to something that that uh, Karen and and Andre have said, you know, the the the, the prosecutor, the, this prosecutor said that that it's it's entirely possible that that Ar Arbery shot himself by pulling on the shotgun barrel. Uh, when when uh, when uh, uh, one of the McMichaels was pointing the shotgun at him with his finger on the trigger, okay. That, that, that all right? Maybe that could happen once. It doesn't explain how it ha how you get shot three times doing that. Uh, that was left to to our imagination. But I, I would I would point out one thing that's uh, Andre. You're right. This has there there is a tragic sameness to all of this, and and that that we just we just can't get past but there is one different thing that's happening here and that is the republican reaction to to, to what we're seeing uh and, and it was led by chris carr 
I mean, within uh, an hour or so of that video being released and new new information coming out on Tuesday night, he was out there saying this is this is this is questionable. We need to take a very very close look at it, and everything kind of fell in line from there. And you're seeing some you're seeing some very sharp uh, comments from Republicans from from Buddy Carter, who's saying that we've got to look at the at the, at the local prosecutors at the local local political operation. Uh, and 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 you've got candidates elsewhere saying the same thing. And I think it's really please. time yeah. that uh, we, uh, that this this horrific crime. I think it's time for the hate crimes legislation that's been kicking around the General Assembly to actually be passed. Uh, this this is a case in point. Uh, stronger penalties for for crimes committed based on race, religion, sexual orientation. We're one of the few states that doesn't have such a law. And and this case shows, again, why it's needed. So, I mean, I think, Jim, I, I agree with you. Um, and I, you know, applaud uh, Republicans for standing up um, for this particular issue. I think this one is pretty easy because it's so obvious. Um, I think the, the harder questions come when the, when the facts of the case are a little bit more ambiguous and more open to interpretation that we start to see a a more clear partisan divide, but on this one, you know, I, you know, I applaud the unity that we've seen here. But I think it's because this one is so egregious, um, and I think for a lot of people who have to sort of inhabit black bodies who face this type of violence or the fear of it, it's a question of when it doesn't look as obvious um, or as vivid. You know, are people willing to stand up for them when they, in fact, are being victimized? I think that that's a, you know, a question that we're still going to have to grapple with. I just wanted to follow up on Jim's point, too, that, you know, the Republican leadership is starting to take notice, but also the faith community in Metro Atlanta has taken notice because I've seen some recent postings from some of the local pastors about how they want to encourage their Christian base to stand behind the communities and get in, you know, and speak out, not to let this go unnoticed. And I think... My interest in the political part is will those faith-based leaders also stand with the Republican Party to piggyback on what Andy said is then to push for some kind of legislation at the session for against this, you know, hate crime legislation. Uh, Yeah, I think the fact that the governor is now saying he's open to pursuing hate crimes legislation is uh, meaningful uh, because uh, for the most part in the past, in over many years, any effort to introduce hate crimes legislation, Jim, as you well know, has been blocked primarily by Republicans in the Senate. Last year, it was a Republican who introduced that legislation. Chuck Evstration in the House, uh, but uh, the Senate made it clear it would not uh, pass it. So it's, it, it is an opening, uh, but it's symbolic. Let's face it. Uh, uh, right, hate right. crimes no, legislation, there are enhanced penalties, but it's symbolic. Yeah, uh, the bill you're talking about is HB 426. It was it was introduced by yep. by, by Evstration, as you said, and passed with House Speaker David Ralston's support. Uh, it it's in the Senate. The Senate the, the the legislature will reconvene, and when it reconvenes, this measure will still be alive, and it can be passed. And that's why that's why it's it's kind it of w- encouraging to to hear to hear uh, Kemp saying that 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 he'd like to consider it. Yeah, thank you for, for reminding me, reminding all of us that that the bill it, we're still in the second year of a biennial, so it it actually can come back. And you're right, we'll see. And the reason, Andre, I call it symbolic, is that it certainly enhanced penalties and saying clearly, uh, you, you, we are not going to tolerate uh, bigotry, crimes committed out of bigotry, is very very meaningful. I was talking about the fact that if the Arbery case uh, moves this through, that's great. But we still have a justice system that is not necessarily changed by, it, by a, a legislature that approves a hate crimes bill. The justice oh. system still has a lot of work to do. I totally, totally agree. Yeah. All right. Um, by the way, President Trump was on Fox and Friends uh, this morning. Um, He's uh, commented on the Arbery case. He called it very disturbing. He said it was heartbreaking and very rough. He said, I looked at a picture of that young man. Looks like a really good young guy. It's a very disturbing situation to me. And I just, my heart goes out to the parents and the family and the friends. So, Jim, there you go. An example of 
you know, cross-party uh, recognition of the horrendous uh, yeah, nature cr- of this crime. Cross-party recognition, and let us let us acknowledge that we are in an election year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's right. That's right. Um, you know, the other quick point I'll make here, and then let's move on, is that uh, a number of listeners, when we talked about this case yesterday, reminded me in uh, emails they sent later of the incident we had down there, uh, 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 Jim, in 2010, when the Glynn County police uh, were on a very strange low-speed chase with a woman named Caroline Small. She was driving around. She was disturbed. We don't know exactly what her mental state was, but she has accused of she was driving recklessly. A number of police cars started following her on this very erratic uh, chase. Uh, Her tires went flat and they stopped her and surrounded her vehicle. And as she sat in the car with no provocation that's ever been proven, uh, shoot her and uh, poured eight bullets into the front windshield of the car. So, you know, I mean, there's another, I mean, I only bring that up because it's another case in that jurisdiction which raises question. This was not a police shooting, but it it is worth remembering that that happened back in 2010, Jim. No, no, no. and clearly we have some uh, we have some problems with with prosecutors in 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 certain parts of Georgia. But to Andre's point, right. uh, this, Th- those... you know, that, that, that right that, to Andre's point that the, uh, the one thing that does make this case different is that we're not dealing with a shooting by uh, a law enforcement officer per se, just a friend right. of law enforcement. Yes, but the prosecutor's office in that case decided not to take action exactly. either. That's the reason it's worth at least mentioning here. All right, you know what? We will obviously continue to follow this case on Political Rewind, but but we're going to move on. Let's talk a bit about what's happening with uh, the virus. The governor did have a news conference yesterday. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. Um, and uh, Andy Miller, we're looking forward to getting your take on what's happening there. But let's get our first break of the show out of the way and come back with more on this Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Um, Welcome back to Political Rewind. I I meant to mention before we took our break that uh, if you want a real breakdown of how the incident unfolded, on February 23rd in, in, uh, in, outside in a suburb outside of Brunswick. Um, we're posting on our social media platforms a link to a story LaRaven Taylor of GPB News uh, did in which she not only lays out the, the uh, incident herself, but then includes a copy of the police report that was filed. So you may want to take a look at that. All right, let's move on. Uh, Andy Miller, you just told us at the beginning of the show you were at the governor's news conference yesterday uh, in which he talked about the latest in terms of the coronavirus in Georgia. What did what were the takeaways that were most important to you in what the governor said yesterday, Andy? Well, I think, uh, first of all, he talked about the increased capacity to test people here in Georgia, and he urged all Georgians, any Georgian, that it may not even be symptomatic to get a test, uh, that they're available now, much more available than they were before. And, and that's absolutely true. I think there have been, though, some snags in terms of people uh, waiting in line a little bit too long. And there's also been some snags in terms of labs being overwhelmed with all these tests that they have to process. But still, and again, Georgia has ramped up. We're getting better in terms of per capita testing versus other states. He also, the governor talked about increased hospital capacity to deal with a potential surge. Uh, he talked about more protective equipment for healthcare workers, and he talked. Uh, he emphasized again the incredible toll that 
this disease has taken upon people who live in long-term care facilities. 50% of the deaths yeah. in Georgia are in nursing homes, assisted living facilities, and personal care homes. Did he address yesterday, because I, I didn't uh, see his remarks, uh, we, we, we've talked several times on the show about the, the toll this is taking on African-Americans in the state. Eighty percent of the hospitalizations are African-Americans. And, uh, and there is a coalition of black organizations that have asked, and we can talk about this in a minute, have asked for a meeting uh, with the governor to find out, to, to urge him to be more aware of what's happening in the African-American community. Did, did he raise that on his own yesterday? I didn't necessarily hear that. I, I heard that he was concerned about the Hall County situation, which is uh, many Latino people are infected in, in, in the Gainesville area. But clearly, we've always had health disparities based on racial lines, and and this disease has brought them out starkly. And the CDC uh, that study, they went into Atlanta hospitals and they went into Phoebe Putney in Albany and they concluded 83 uh, percent of the COVID patients were African-American. And that's still, despite what we know about health disparities, that's a stunning number. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, the, the governor was fairly transparent yesterday, Karen, in, I thought, um, you know, there have been times when we've come away from his news conferences uh, to and said, we're not quite sure, we didn't get a lot of clarity out of, of what he was saying. Uh, he seemed to perhaps at times be hedging in terms of data and that sort of thing. But the fact, Karen, that yesterday he was willing to, to tell reporters what Andy just said, which is, uh, yes, we've got plenty of tests, more and more tests, uh, but we're having a hard time processing them. The labs are overwhelmed. I thought that was a step toward clearer communication and more candid communication that, that is a, uh, a good thing for all of us, Karen. I think you're right in the fact that it is nice to hear that clear message coming. Of course, I think also the governor realizes that he has been receiving a lot of pushback, his approvals going down as he opened up early. So he does want to reinforce that he is looking and listening to the data and expertise and trying to share that very carefully with us. Jim? Uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, the, uh, one question I would have for Andy, and, and, and uh, uh, Lord knows that he, he knows far more than uh, the rest of us put together on the topic. Okay, we have the, the tests can be conducted uh, but w what we have found is that there's a difference between the tests being conducted and the tests being processed. If I were to to ring ring my 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 testing site up and and make a reservation and get and get tested, how quickly would I know whether or not I've been exposed? Well, it's a that's a, a very good question. At the beginning of this pandemic here in Georgia, people would wait up to 10, 11, 12 days to get their test results. And what that would do would uh, they could uh, test positive but not know it for and be asymptomatic for days and days and days. And uh, unfortunately, healthcare workers, uh, especially nurses, will say that uh, a lot of the infections among healthcare workers are people that they didn't know were positive, and then days later they the test comes out and it is a positive, and they and the healthcare worker for those days has been exposed without the proper PPE or personal protective equipment. So uh, when a lab gets overwhelmed, the, the chances of you getting your test back within 24, 48 hours is much less. Um, let me go back, Andra, to the uh, African-American groups that are looking at having an opportunity of sent a letter to the governor saying they want to come talk to him. Uh, they're national organizations, local organizations, all mixed together. I, I, I guess the question would have to be, what do you imagine, and you're not part of these groups, obviously, what, what, what should they be asking the governor? What, what, what do they need to focus on with him, do you imagine? Well, there are a lot of things that I can imagine that they would focus on. I mean, one, I would point out that uh, the governor's coronavirus task force 
certainly has ample representation from the civil rights community, has ample representation amongst African Americans. So like our friend Leo Smith, who's a frequent guest on the show, is a part of that um, committee. And mm-hmm. so I think probably what they are going to want are greater lines of communication, and they also are going to want to know what kinds of targeted outreach efforts are being dispatched to communities of color to make sure that they're getting testing, um, to make sure that people know, um, you know, where they can turn if they happen to be in a rural area where hospitals are, you know, in scarce supply, um, and to just make sure that people are getting access to, to PPE and that the message is getting out about the steps that people can take to protect themselves as much as possible, even if uh, because of out of economic necessity, they have to put themselves out there and put themselves in harm's way in order to earn a living. Well, I think one of the things you said there uh, uh, makes me think about yet another aspect of this. You pointed out that probably targeting communications at, at, at communities of African-Americans who need more information, know where to go to get tested, how to protect themselves. I, I think it's interesting, Jim Galloway, that uh, uh, John King, the uh, Hispanic uh, a commissioner of insurance for the state of Georgia, former police chief uh, uh, here, uh, he's been dispatched to uh, to work with it, the uh, Hispanic community up in the Gainesville area, where where we had terrible outbreaks in the uh, population of people who work on the poultry uh, uh, facilities up there, to uh, help them get to help get the message out in Spanish, so the people uh, in Hall County and surrounding areas are able to get the message as well. Uh, we also right. know that Hispanics have been disproportionately impacted by this disease. Right, right. And there's a, there's a, there's a dual, uh, a dual uh, motive here. Of course, one is humanitarian, and, and, and I think that's wonderful that, 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 that Kemp appointed uh, uh, King as insurance co- uh, uh, commissioner when uh, his, the, 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 previous fellow was was indicted uh but also remember that this is a 40 billion dollar industry uh for georgia and 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 uh uh the state wants to keep that going i would also point out that you know i was talking to uh to uh michael thurman the other day about uh DeKalb county has his has is trying to distribute ten thousand masks uh, they, they're about halfway through that process right now, and he said he told me that one of the problems they're having is that among the the the, the, the skeptics uh, in his community are young African Americans, and they're they're trying to reach out uh, uh, to them that way. Uh, he says he's got uh, uh, killer. He's gonna uh, killer Mike is gonna get on uh, on on uh, say uh, a, a few uh, black radio stations to start trying to convince that section of the population that they need to mask up. Yeah, uh, by the way, uh, Michael Thurman will be on the show on Monday uh, to talk about uh, just what his efforts are. Karen? I was just going to follow up there with Jim's comment, and I think one of the important pieces of this is Kemp's, you know, relying on another leader, and I think it is very important that we see very localized community leaders to, you know, lead by example. So if they're going to be out in the community, wear those masks or be proactive in that communication so you're encouraging others to take steps to protect themselves and others around them because a lot of our workers right now, frontline workers, are uh, they need those masks or they need other equipment to make sure that they are being protected. And I think we have some community leaders. Uh, they don't have to be local elected officials, but they can just be leaders in the community that can lead by example, and that will help in some of these ways to to protect our citizens. I thought, uh, Jim Galloway, that leads me into uh, giving you an opportunity to talk about the uh, truly wonderful column. Have you put it, is it up on the, on the, uh, on the AJC uh, website at this point? Yeah, yeah, it's up there. You talk about leading by example. You talk about the difference between President Trump in Arizona visiting a mask factory and not wearing a mask. And Governor Kemp going to South Georgia, going to Albany to visit uh, Phoebe Putney and that medical center down there, and remaining masked the entire time. Tell us about uh, your column. Just give us a little insight about what you were writing, and I want the uh, panel to get engaged. Well, it's it's is uh, it was not just the trip to Albany, which was on the same day that that, that Trump went to, to Arizona, so there was that contrast. But you know, but on on Thursday he tweeted out a photo of 
of, of himself getting a haircut, and he was masked, so was the barber. Uh, and and my point was 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 twofold. I, you know, uh, just to give him credit on on two counts. Number number one, we have this this just terrible debate springing up in which masking or unmasking has become a political decision, and 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 by 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 coming down on the side that he came down, uh, Kemp is essentially trying. Uh, he, he's going a little bit toward depoliticizing that that issue. But it's it's also look, we are opening the economy, and in doing so, we know more people are going to die. We just have to make the choice of how many we think that's going to be. All right, and we know who is going to die: uh, el elderly and the infirm, but most particularly the low wage workers who don't have the the financial wherewithal or the jobs that allow them to shelter in place. They're the ones who are going to be vulnerable, and wearing a mask is. A cloth mask of the type that he was wearing. It's not to protect you from the outside world. It's to protect the outside world from you. And my point is that if you are going to face a grocery clerk, then that mask isn't just about public health. You're you're showing her respect. You're showing him respect uh, for for risking your their lives for your benefits because their world is a lot more dangerous than yours. Um, Andy, uh, uh, Jim cites in his column a conservative talk show host who does a show on a commercial radio station out in uh, Athens, uh, who is uh, using as his defense of why masks are basically a waste of time that there's been that the CDC initially said you shouldn't be wearing a mask. It isn't really that helpful. But CDC guidance changed and, and they've gone a different direction. Right, Andy? They have. They recommend uh, wearing masks, even if it's not one of these N95 respirators, even if it's a cloth mask. And as Jim pointed out, the fact that you're protecting the person uh, across from you as you wear one, I think uh, the fact that this has become a political issue is uh, is horrendous, really. It, this is public health. And and, uh, you know, the CDC, which has been kind of sidelined in this whole debate about the coronavirus. Uh, you know, their guidance is, is really strong and good on these issues, and uh, we ought to pay attention to it. Um, you know, Andra and Karen, as political science professionals, Andra, let me start with you, and then Karen, you should weigh in. Um, you're both used to uh, uh, writing about, uh, teaching about, talking about uh divides in our country politically on the basis of race, on the basis of gender, um, on the basis of regions of the country, all that sort of thing. And suddenly in 2020, we have this remarkable and strange divide that's come up in terms of how to deal with a pandemic where you've got lines being drawn politically around uh, those people who say, that uh, wearing a mask is uh, what are the what's the term for it, Jim? But what do the critics say about the people who are wearing masks? You wrote about it in your oh, column. Uh, oh, uh, uh, virtue, virtue signaling. Virtue signal. So, Andre and Karen, weigh in on this strange new divide that we're seeing. Oh, well, this isn't actually a strange new divide. I mean, the partisan tribes are um, really fixed. <clears throat> Excuse me, and they're and they're and they're much more. Um, acute, and they've affected and permeated almost every aspect of our lives. And so we could go back to public opinion data where people don't want to marry or date outside of their political party, um, and where people object more strenuously to people, you know, having their children being involved romantically with folks from a different party than they, you know, would be of having, uh, you know, partners of a different race. So it's just another place where this has manifested, manifested itself. And so uh, wearing a mask becomes a certain type of shibboleth, but it also reflects this um, comfort level uh, and sort of uh, ways that we value not just science, but how we value expertise. Um, and so I think the attitudes are is that if you don't say it perfectly the first time or you can't update based on new information, then clearly you must be wrong and therefore I don't have to listen to you. Um, and it's the type of arrogance that could cost somebody their health or their life. Um, it's also uh, really disrespectful. Um, and I think that that was what Jim was, was, was pointing out here. But, I mean, it reflects mm -hmm. these other um, sort of larger ideological issues in terms of what people's worldviews are 
about addressing these issues. So, you know, I, you know, respect uh, Governor Kemp for going out and wearing a mask, I think, in terms of moral leadership and just the symbolism um, of going out and saying that I'm going to take proper precautions if I'm going to take certain risks in certain areas of my life is something that's actually really admirable. And President Trump doesn't realize that he undermines his own authority when he goes and, and, and does stuff like go to a mask factory without wearing a mask. Or, as has now come up in the last 24 hours, if he doesn't self-quarantine now that his ballot has uh, contracted coronavirus, right? Like, you've got to model good behavior. And there's the stuff that you can disagree about, but then there's the basic stuff that you shouldn't disagree about. And your example is the type of example that could, you know, cost other people their lives. Like, I had to have a conversation with my six- and nine-year-old nieces about why you shouldn't ingest cleaner. Um, and I shouldn't have had to have that conversation with them about that, right? And the fact that my nine-year-old niece could say matter-of-factly when she was queried by both me and my sister-in-law that you die if you do that, right, is, is, is an example of sort of what happens when you're ceding moral authority, when you're kind of ceding the platform that you have. There's been a lot of misinformation yeah. about this disease, okay. and, uh, and I think that uh, – whether it was the lupus drug that uh, Trump promoted early on that is shown not to be effective at all. Uh, and, and it's just uh, which is why we need the scientists, the public health people like the CDC out front to uh, give the right, accurate information. So I would just Karen, why don't you get in before a break? Yes, I would just follow up, you know, with what Andra said about we are still seeing the divisions within America. Um, and a lot of it's being, you know, raised and uh, by those who are talking without consistent messaging. You know, one thing I think this kind of goes back to that ideological divide is what you think the role of government is and how do you value freedoms, individual responsibility versus the collective good. And so some citizens right now are really, you know, holding tight and firm to this is my individual freedom to do as I want and I need to be going out and doing anything and doing many things that affect my livelihood, but I don't want to think about others, whereas there are many others who are looking at the collective good of public health, like I need to wear this mask. I need to stay at home because I want to connect I want to protect and help my community. So I think we're seeing that division. And then again, like she said, you know, it's about modeling from the leadership. Are people giving us those examples that we understand in crises and pandemics, there is the role of government. Government has to step in. And that, you know, no matter where you lie on the political spectrum, you have to trust that there are experts who, this is their job, to look into details, to look at the science, look at the data, and share that so that we all are safe for the general welfare, right? That's part of our, the first part of the Constitution, right, to protect for the general welfare, and that is, at this time, what we need. You know, Jim, uh, before we get to this break, I, I, I want to add this and get your feedback. In fact, any of you are welcome to weigh in. I think there's a new storyline developing that's really potentially troubling. We already know that there are that the president and to some extent Governor Kemp have said, "Gee, you know, we want to safeguard these communities across this the state across the country, but you have to step up. You have to be involved. You have to practice social distancing and take the other measures that will keep you and others safe." And and there is something to that. But Jim, I think a storyline that's developing that's going to become increasingly difficult to to grapple with is Employees of stores are suddenly being challenged. We've had two shoes. We've had a killing. We've had a murder in a, uh, a store in which a, an employee tried to stop a woman who was not wearing a mask from coming into the store. She came back with her husband. He shot and killed the employee. And across the country, we're hearing increasing stories about employees who are being put in a position of trying to enforce rules for social distancing, for masking. It was never part of their responsibility. And as things start to open up, I think we're going to be hearing more. There was an incident at McDonald's, a similar incident, where a woman was not allowed in without a mask. This happened just yesterday. Uh, she came back and started shooting at people in the store. This is right. terribly disturbing. 
Right, and it, and it's it's interesting, and because it because it goes beyond whether the 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 state, uh, the, the 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 local government uh, has has a has a mandate for wearing a mask. I think what you're going to see is mm-hmm. is 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 that proprietors, large chain proprietors, are going to start requiring people to 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 wear a mask uh, before they enter their property. Okay, it is. It's and yeah. and and there is going to be resentment. It, 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 it there's a strange parallel between this and two debates over 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 uh, carrying firearms. You know, in in Georgia, that debate ultimately came down to whether a property owner had the right to control act behavior on 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 his or her property, uh, and we see the same thing happening here. All right, let's get our final break of the show out of the way. When we come back, I want to talk pure politics for a few minutes with our panel on today's Political Rewind. Karen Owen of West Georgia University, Jim Galloway of the AJC, of course, Annie Miller, Georgia Health News, and Andre Gillespie join us today for the panel. Andre Gillespie, you are the data cruncher among the people who do Political Rewind. So I want to ask you your thoughts about a piece. Axios, the political website, compiled a, a, a grouping of the polls that have been coming out of Senate races around the country recently. And here are just the highlights of it. They're bad news for Republicans. Uh, they here's what Axios uh, says various polls are showing. In Montana, uh, Steve Bullock is beating the Republican incumbent Steve Daines by seven points right now. In North Carolina, the Democratic candidate, Cal Cunningham, is ahead of the incumbent Republican, Tom Tillis, by nine points. In Arizona, Democrat Mark Kelly leads uh, incumbent and very, very vociferous Trump supporter Martha McSally by eight points. In uh, Kansas, the Democratic uh, frontrunner is uh, apparently about two points ahead of Chris Kobach, who is uh, running for that seat. And in Maine, uh, Susan Collins is behind her Democratic opponent, maybe by about two points. And even in Iowa, it looks like Senator Ernst, Jody Ernst, Jody Ernst has a, a very narrow wafer-like lead over her opponent, Teresa Greenfield. Uh, 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 Andra, where's all this headed? Well, I mean, I, I expect that this is going to be a competitive uh, Senate season. Um, it was already set up to be that way. So compared to 2018, where uh, there were more vulnerable uh, Democrats uh, who were uh, running uh, than Republicans, this seat had more, uh, this race has actually more Republicans who are competing, and they are competing at a time uh, that's probably more adverse uh, to them. Um, and so it's not surprising that you would have seen that. I mean, I think it's also important to point out that if you look at Maine and Iowa and Kansas, right, these are close races. So, I mean, this is, it. I can't, I wouldn't mm-hmm. predict on anything in, in May or November because a lot can change between yeah, now and then. But the margins are actually, you know, much more narrow. And statistically, we would say that they were a tie. And, you know, Democrats also have a fight on their hands in Alabama in order to keep Doug Jones's uh, Senate seat. So we would be remiss if we didn't miss that. So I think, you know, there are a couple of, of issues that could be at play here. It could be that down ballot President Trump's coattails are not particularly effective right now. And so he's got a lot of ground to catch up, uh, not just for himself, but also in the hopes of not dragging down other candidates. Um, and, you know, people are looking at sort of how uh, uh, Republicans in the Senate are, you know, addressing the pandemic. Uh, they could be looking at how they support or do or don't challenge President Trump. Um, and so I think that everybody has to be prepared that this is going to be a long slog and that, you know, uh, no party is going to win in a cakewalk and that this is going to be a really competitive season and that Democrats um, are going to try to leverage some of the disadvantages that Republicans have created for themselves. So, Karen, Karen let's bring it home. Uh, Kelly Leffler has, uh, since being appointed to the to the job, has uh, been a vociferous supporter of President Trump. She's tied himself uh, herself at the hip to him. Um, but is she, among others who are trying to hold seats, going to have to be careful about how they uh, relate to President Trump if his approval numbers uh, through the virus continue to decline? Yes, I think she has to be very strategic in how she aligns herself with Trump and her work in the pandemic. I mean, obviously, 
a lot of reports have come out about this financial um, concern that she, you know, profited because of inside knowledge she had gained. And so I think she has to be smart. She's also running in this extremely large field for that seat. There's, what, 20, 21 candidates. She's going to have a formidable challenge from Doug uh, Collins, and he's getting other support. So I think, yes, she has a really tough time to, if she maintains the seat or if really a Republican can keep that seat. Yeah, yeah Hey, Bill, Jim, here, why don't you weigh in? But as you – go ahead. Uh, no, no, I, I was I, I was going to say it's 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 what I see happening with Leffler is is that the, the rationale behind her her appointment by Governor Kemp to to Johnny Isaacson's seat is 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 really coming under a lot of stress. It's not just the stock market stock trades uh, that she that that she's conducted. Uh, uh, it's uh, she is the, the 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 payout she she took from the Intercontinental Exchange. Uh, be, uh, when becoming Senate uh, is, is another thing. She got nine million bucks. It kind of undercuts the the financial sacrifice that she's claiming she's made. Most importantly, Karen Handel on Thursday endorsed Doug Collins. Karen Handel mm-hmm. is running, trying right. to reclaim the sixth district. She is dependent on on this move by Kemp that was supposed to to keep suburban women from uh, from from fleeing the Republican Party. This is Kelly. Kelly. Kelly Leffler is not having the effect that many many Republicans thought she might have. Well, I just wanted to follow up on that point about Karen Handel's endorsement. This again plays to what we see a lot in gender politics: how women are not always supportive of other women. So, and especially on the conservative side, you will see that sometimes it's how women gauge the actual candidacy. They want to pick the best candidate sometimes, and it's not always aligning. Just because I'm a woman, I'm going to support the woman. So I think interesting here is the signal that Handel is sending to other suburban women about supporting this woman who was to, to align you know, and pick up that vote. Uh, we got under two minutes, but I want to give you a chance to talk, Andre. And as I do, though, I want to point out that Leffler has been really vociferous in her support, as I've said. David Perdue has backed away from talking about Trump in terms of the coronavirus. He's talking about other issues, but not that. I think that's interesting. Well, I mean, uh, Kelly Leffler is in a different position than David Perdue. So she's right. trying to distinguish herself from Doug Collins. And Doug Collins is well-established as a Trumper. Um, and if she wants to make it into second place for that runoff, she's got to get Trump-supporting Republicans in the state. So she's trying to uh, assert her bona fides, but she's doing it without having had the benefit of a honeymoon period, right? So, you know, it's really unfortunate that, you know, everything kind of hit the fan as soon as she came in, um, and she ends up getting redefined in this way that makes her look too rich and out of touch. Andre Gillespie, you get the last word on today's Political Rewind. Uh, Thank you, Andre, for being with us. Andy Miller, thank you. Georgia Health News, always worth reading to find out about the latest in the medical community, and certainly during this virus right now. Karen Owen, Jim Galloway, uh, thank you for being with us. And to all of you out there who have been listening day after day and who continue to send me notes about uh, how the show has impacted you, I appreciate it deeply. We're very proud uh, that uh, Jesse Neiswanger, Tom Faust, Sam Burmis Dawes, and I can uh, uh, be here every day to talk about the issues that matter most in your lives right now. Everybody have a safe and I hope restful weekend. We'll see you on Monday with Sam Olins and Michael Thurmond and Mr. Jim Galloway. Take care, everybody.